Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Coming up later this hour, IPR's Katerina Sestarek joins me, and we'll talk with Iowa lawmakers on both sides of the aisle about a bill that would remove gender identity as a protected class under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Uh, It also adds gender dysphoria under the definition of disability in the Iowa Code. That's in the second half of the program. But you can send an email question or concern now for that discussion later in the program, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Let's first go to this. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is under scrutiny from state leaders, from athletic coaches, and others about their probe into sports betting at the University of Iowa and Iowa State University. The DCI probe has resulted in more than two dozen athletes and student managers being charged in addition to an NCAA investigation and penalties. Let's get up to speed with Tyler Jett, investigative reporter with the Des Moines Register. Tyler, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. Tyler, for, for those who know nothing or very little about this, bring us up to speed on this investigation. Um, and I know uh, you became aware of this investigation fairly recently, but what do we think uh, the DCI has been probing here? So the DCI has been investigating uh, gambling activity by University of Iowa and Iowa State uh, athletes. Uh, this started uh, early last year, trying to figure out uh, who's been gambling or whether or not these athletes have been gambling. The charges have been things like uh, gambling under the age of 21, which is a crime in Iowa, and uh, also some stuff about uh, sort of tampering with records, basically, or identity theft. And that has Mm -hmm. been tied to allegations that these athletes were using other people's accounts on websites like or apps like uh, FanDuel and DraftKings. Some cases, it's like their parents' accounts or their girlfriend's accounts, things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we'll talk with a, a Drake Law Scholar who uh, specializes in this area in just a moment. But a, a key question here, besides underage uh, people doing this online gambling, is whether student athletes were gambling, because obviously you might have student athletes, if it's their own game, altering their performances to make money off wagers, right? Yeah, that is definitely a possibility. Um, that is sort of the nightmare scenario for kind of all big-time athletics, uh, especially as we've seen a huge influx in uh, online gambling for kind of everybody across the country and a lot more acceptance of this. And, I mean, you, if you watch it, you know, if you watch a University of Iowa game, chances are you're going to see an ad for uh, FanDuel or DraftKings during the game. And uh, that ad revenue does actually trickle down to the universities, but that's a whole other issue. Right. Okay. So explain now the latest news. This court filing alleging officials at the Iowa DCI lied to their own agents. How does that fit in? So last week, uh, we got some court filings from defense attorneys on this case. Uh, They are making a case for how this investigation began, which has been an open question for months because the DCI has not told us. Um, And the uh, there was a filing uh, last week on behalf of one of the players in which uh, DCI special agent Mark Ludwig apparently uh, told uh, defense attorneys during a deposition earlier in January that he was lied to 
by his own bosses about the nature of the case, uh, that this case was supposed to be an administrative case in which they were checking whether these services like FanDuel and DraftKings were mm -hmm. upholding the gambling laws in Iowa and making sure that people were not breaking those laws. And uh, that he went and interviewed uh, an Iowa State player and went so far as to tell the Iowa State player that uh, he was not under investigation. There were no criminal or, or no consequences for what he told them. And then only after the interview, uh, Special Agent Ludwig uh, found out that this was, um, you know, a, a criminal case against these players. Mm -hmm. So, so going there, this is under a false pretense uh, that the and the DCI agent, special agent there, was um, objecting to that because he he understood it to be a completely different reason when his superior uh, ha had a different aim in mind. So we don't know whether the special agent was objecting to that. What we know about this is this all came out in depositions on January 19th, and uh, we have not seen the full transcripts of these depositions. We haven't seen the full context. We, what we have mm. seen is what the defense attorneys say came out of these depositions. So, I you know, I, I, I don't know what Special Agent Mark Ludwig thinks about the situation. I just know what the defense says happened. Talk about the accusations of illegal searches. Sure. So this is the this gets to the question of how did this whole thing begin, which has again been uh, sort of a mystery to the public and something that the defense attorneys and the players and their families have been calling for uh, some information on this. And what came out in another court motion last week, again from these January nineteenth depositions, is this case began with DCI Special Agent Brian Sanger, um, according to the motions. He has a software called GeoComply. It's, it's basically a, a software that shows you where betting apps are getting opened, and uh, it can give you more information from there. But he was using the software to see if anybody was opening these betting apps, first at a University of Iowa freshman and sophomore dorm, and then he allegedly went to his bosses and said, hey, people are opening apps within this dorm, which, you know, you could make a connection there and say, well, these people were probably under 21, which would be illegal in Iowa. But... At any rate, um, the, his bosses allegedly told him, don't continue with this investigation, and then he did so anyway, and he went to a University of Iowa athletic building and, and checked there whether there was gambling activity going on. And then, according to the motion, his bosses gave him the green light and said, go ahead and investigate this more. And he and a team of agents then looked into more gambling going on at U University of Iowa and Iowa State buildings. Um, so where does it go from here? What will you be watching in the coming days and weeks? So first is what the prosecutors say in response to this. These are huge allegations that could potentially get this whole case thrown out, uh, or at least the cases that are still pending. And, um, you know, the, the prosecutors have not responded to this. The DCI has not responded to this. They, they have declined to comment, saying this is an ongoing investigation. So those are the first two big points right there. And, you know, I'll tell you, uh, Democrats in the House and the Senate here in Iowa have been calling for more information on this, saying this is uh, not, uh, you know, this is not kosher, basically, and we need to know more about what leadership is doing uh, at the DCI. I will say that uh, Brenna Byrd, the attorney general, has said, I don't have any concerns about this investigation. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds said last week, uh, you know, basically asked about this whole thing and, and, you know, whether or not it was run by her and all this stuff. She said, this is their job to do that uh, in terms of investigating. So uh, you are seeing kind of two different responses politically on this at, at this stage. But 
at the very least, we kind of want to know what's going to happen with this case. Um, yeah, and, and the athletic coaches at the, at the respective universities are up in arms, right? Yeah, they are up in arms, and they've been very upset. A number of coaches have come out, and wrestling coaches in particular, and have said, you know, this was, you know, not okay, and, you know, why wasn't anybody, you know, calling for this information, you know, earlier and things like that. I think people were calling for this information. They weren't getting it. I should point out that the DCI in Iowa, public records laws are not as uh, open when it comes to law enforcement investigations as other states are, at least other states I've worked at, including uh, Florida, Georgia, and Tennessee. Um, so that just makes it more difficult to know this stuff. But anyway, coaches have been very upset about this. Another kind of important element to this, though, is while the while the information you know may not hold up in court because of the way this stuff came about, uh, you know, a number of kids have pleaded guilty, uh, and you know, they haven't refuted the fact that they were gambling, um, including on some of their you know own contests. So mm. that's a separate issue from the criminal stuff, and I think that that has sort of been lost in the headlines thus far. Yeah. Uh, Tyler Jett, we'll track your reporting. Investigative reporter with the Des Moines Register. Tyler Jett, thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Ben. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer talking about the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation being under scrutiny from state leaders, uh, athletic coaches, uh, among others, about their probe into sports betting at the University of Iowa and ISU. Uh, This probe has resulted in more than two dozen athletes and student managers charged in addition to NCAA investigations and penalties having been paid. Let's talk now with Keith Miller. He is the Ellis and Nell Levitt Distinguished Professor of Law at Drake University in Des Moines. Hi, Keith. Hello, Ben. You have an area of expertise we're very interested in, gaming law and regulation. First of all, give us some more background on sports betting, how it's changed in recent years, especially as it relates to young people. And we've had recent law changes here, right? It's, sports betting has been part of the American uh, gambling landscape for <clears throat> many years. Uh, it's been so prevalent, I think, that when the Supreme Court of the United States issued its decision in 2018 that states could be allowed to authorize, regulate, legalize sports betting, that it really just solidified the, um, so to speak, normalization of that activity. So it had been going on for a long time, but certainly with legalization, it accelerated uh, and amplified its role in American uh, society and certainly in Iowa. As it relates to young people, it's certainly no surprise that a large number of young people, almost all of the men, were betting on sports in Iowa, were finding uh, where in some instances they should not have been. We know that young men are prodigious sports bettors. They follow sports, have an interest in sports, and they think that that makes them good sports bettors, and they're good at using electric electronic devices to, uh, so they can bet online. And what's really, I think, um, compelling is that of the $2.2 billion that was wagered on sports in Iowa in fiscal year 2023, 92% of that was wagered online. So um, online sports betting by young people is, um, it, it is a very strong driving force in sports betting. So, so you said over $2 billion, billion with a B, in, just in Iowa? Yes. That's amazing. Wager, yes, that, that, is, that's, that is what we call 
uh, when talk when people talk about the amount wagered, that's referred to as the handle. Um, one of the characteristics of sports betting, however, is that uh, of that 2.2 billion dollars wagered, typically 90 to 95 percent of that goes back to successful bettors, and that reduces the taxable revenue that the sports book and the casinos realize. And that's why sports betting is really not a uh, tax cash cow as far as state revenues are concerned. Keith, we have to take a short break. We'll be back uh, with Keith Miller of Drake University uh, talking about gaming law and regulation when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. A conversation I had earlier today with Keith Miller. Let's go back to that. He's the Ellis and Nell Levitt Distinguished Professor of Law at Drake University with expertise in gaming law and regulation. Keith, to continue our conversation, let's get your reflections on uh, what we're seeing play out here. And, of course, the DCI is not saying much here, but we have that court filing here. What are your thoughts about what we know about these probes and how they were conducted? Well, the DCI, uh, I think at some point in the future there will be uh, a book written about this because we have a lot of intrigue about what happened, how it developed, and the DCI uh, as, a, as a criminal investigation unit is typically not forthcoming about criminal investigations that they, that they engage in. But I think what we're finding out now is that there were uh, real uh, concerns, questions that are being raised about how they went about uh, this investigation and what uh, triggered it. I think that part of the um, social media outrage at the DCI investigation and prosecutions really is a function of the fact that sports betting is so common in the U.S. that there's no real social stigma attached to it as there might be for other forms of gambling. And I think that's why we're seeing a reaction of many people that, hey, everybody bets on sports. It's not, it's not a big deal. Why are they punishing these right. young people? Uh, the mother <clears throat> of one of the athletes even said that when she allowed her name to go on to an account that her son used to bet, that she just made a silly mistake, that it's really considered uh, harmless. And I think that's why the reaction to the DCI investigation is, uh, is so... Uh, pronounced by coaches and uh, by social media and by the public in general. Uh, at the same time, Keith, we do want to make sure, don't we, that you know student athletes are not betting on games that they're involved in uh, for obvious reasons. 
Absolutely. And <clears throat> there should be a clear message sent that an athlete who bets on a contest where she or he is a member of the team involved, that that's categorically forbidden. Uh, and it shouldn't matter whether the athlete actually plays in the game. Um, if they're on the team, they are privy to information regarding injuries, regarding game preparation and strategy, the type of information that gamblers seek and value. And if we look at sports betting, I think appropriately as a market, it's like other markets. In order to operate properly, there has to be transparency of information. Um, those having information not generally available should not be betting, and that includes uh, student athletes who are on a team. Athletic staff members should be categorically forbidden. The more difficult situation is when an athlete is betting on an event where they're not part of the team. Uh, an Iowa football player who's betting on an Iowa women's basketball game. Uh, that is a much more subtle problem. On the one hand, they will share training facilities and they may talk to each other and share information, but that may be true with non-student athletes as well. So that is a very different situation than when a person is a member of the team and they're betting on those games. Yeah. Considering the amount of money, though, and all these nuances that you're pointing out to us, Keith, uh, there are just any number of workarounds you could just dream up about. You put a law in place and you get around it. You put another law in place and you easily get around it. I mean, you're the specialist here. Is that what, is that what the picture is? Well, there, <clears throat> there's no question that um, whatever restriction we put in place or regulators put in place, that there will be some people who will be able to uh, evade it. But I don't think that that should keep us from asking the question of if it's that easy for underage college students to make online sports wagers, do the duties on sportsbook operators to prevent this need to be uh, sharpened uh, a little bit? And there's some question about whether or not operators, sportsbook operators, are vigilant enough. Uh, a survey in Massachusetts by the gaming regulators there in November, they ask sportsbook operators in the state, how many times have you detected underage persons trying to make online sports bets? And the response was either zero or in the single digits. And our experience here shows that cannot possibly be accurate. It, it is going on um, a lot more than that. And uh, I, I don't think that the fact that people will always, some people will always be able to evade restrictions means that we shouldn't investigate trying to do better. Mm -hmm. uh, back to these DCI actions, this court filing, what we know about how this investigation, this probe has been going on. What do you see as potentially harmful or otherwise collateral consequences of how the DCI went about this? This is something that I think has not um, perhaps received the attention it, it deserves. And one way that I think of this is um, the DCI really used a, a sledgehammer to, to kill an ant. Because when you look at the wagers that the athletes placed, almost always they were very small wagers. I think in some instances you'd see an athlete who had 
uh, placed 500 wagers, and the total amount of the wagers was $3,000. Uh, small wagers like that simply don't suggest corruption of the games, and I think the DCI action has led to this widespread public anger at the disproportionate penalties and prosecutions of these athletes. But what concerns me is it also may, excuse me, may have reinforced the belief that because sports betting is no big deal, everybody does it, that why are we punishing athletes for betting on sports? And college athletes betting on sports in which they participate has a large potential for scandal. It could threaten the integrity of our games, and it needs to be very carefully um, monitored. And I think regrettably the DCI actions, because they're viewed as overreaching and being excessively harsh, it really damages the ability to impart that message. Mm -hmm. What do the actions that we know about of the DCI investigation say about their investigations of these gambling operators like DraftKings? Well, <clears throat> that is, um, I think, in the category of actions that the DCI takes that they're not going to tell us very much uh, about. The, the DCI may be, uh, if people say, well, they're investigating sportsbook operators, it may be that they were gathering information regarding the compliance or lack of compliance by sportsbook operators with the regulations and statutes for gambling in, in Iowa. And if they found information along those lines, then that would be passed along to the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission, and a sportsbook operator could be subject to sanctions. I, I think to say that they were investigate the, investigating the sportsbook operators um, for criminal violations, that takes something to a completely different level, and I certainly haven't seen anything that, that suggests that they're looking at this as a matter of criminal misconduct, that would be a devastating sort of um, finding and would affect the licensing of sportsbook operators in Iowa and potentially in other states. So um, there's so much in the background of this, so much speculation that uh, I'm as much in the dark about a lot of it as most people. <laughs> Okay, and finally, and very quickly, please, Keith, what are the implications here? We, we were learning about how the DCI went about, uh, you know, finding out how many apps were being used for online gambling in a certain building, dormitories at, in Iowa City and so forth. We, we have this term geofencing, these virtual boundaries. Does this investigation reveal to you any greater concerns that Iowans, whether they online bet or not, about, you know, Internet privacy? Certainly, any time a government entity collects data, collects information about our behavior, including our online activity, then there's a legitimate concern about the use that information will be uh, put to. Geofencing is an essential part of the way that sports betting is regulated because it is regulated on a state-by-state -state basis. And it has a number of legitimate uses, and it also, as we see, can be very dangerous if it is misused. I don't think that it reflects larger concerns about Internet privacy generally, but it certainly feeds the narrative of 
not always believing that what we do online is going to be protected from the eyes of, of government. Keith Miller, Ellis and Nell Levitt, Distinguished Professor of Law at Drake University. Keith, thank you so much for your expertise and reflections here. Thank you, Ben. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Let's switch gears here midway through the program. The Iowa Civil Rights Act prohibits discrimination based on race, creed, color, sex, sexual orientation, national origin, religion, ancestry, disability, and gender identity. This last-named protected class was added in 2007 when Democrats held the Iowa legislature and the governor's office. Now, over the past few years, under Republican control, GOP lawmakers uh, who hold majorities in the House uh, and the Senate uh, have filed several bills seeking to remove gender identity as one of the protected classes in Iowa's civil rights law. But those bills up to now have not received hearings up to now. A subcommittee hearing has been scheduled for later this week on House File 2082. It's a bill that would remove gender identity protections from Iowa's civil rights law and add gender dysphoria or any condition related to gender identity disorder to the definition of a disability that would be protected under the law. In just a moment, we'll be joined by lawmakers from both sides of the aisle. Uh, and uh, Katerina Sestarek, they're standing by at the Iowa's uh, State House Law Library. And we'd like to have you send your questions now via email for that discussion to our lawmakers, river to river at iowapublicradio.org, or, e- or you can call 1-866-780-9100. Before that discussion, let's get the view of someone in our studio who would be personally impacted by such a proposal becoming law. Chris Mall is with us now. Uh, Chris is a transgender man and a resident of Urbandale, live in our Des Moines studio. Chris, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you. We only have five or six minutes. First, tell us very briefly about yourself your gender identity, and about your family. Sure, yeah. So um, I have lived in Iowa for just about four years now, Uh, moved here because my wife grew up in the area and her folks are still here in Des Moines metro area. Uh, We wanted to move to be closer to them as they're aging and, you know, struggling with some health concerns. So um, I've been happy to live in Iowa, except that since we've moved here, there have been, it seems like this onslaught of legislation trying to really... um, for lack of a better word, like, you know, prevent me or or other trans folks like me from moving here. So I am a transgender man, which means that I was assigned female at birth. And then as I grew up, I realized that my gender identity was not female. It, it's actually male. Uh, so I have been living as the man that I am for years now. Um, that includes, you know, all of my legal documentation. It includes how you would perceive me as you see me uh, walking down the street or, you know, in a grocery store or whatever. Um, but I am transgender, and this bill would impact me and my family because I have a teenager who identifies as gender fluid um, who would not be covered if they remove gender identity from our Civil Rights Act. In just a moment, we'll hear from lawmakers and, in fact, from Representative Jeff Shipley, a Republican here who filed this, according to my information, filed this uh, 2042 House file here. What questions come to mind for you uh, for for a lawmaker uh, with th- this idea of, you know, we're going to hear, as I understand, 
Let's just have a discussion about it. Let's have a subcommittee hearing and discussion about removing gender identity because it's it's protected in other ways. Right. So first, I would actually push back on that being protected in other ways. So I know the new thing with this bill this year is trying to add something into the disability protections, uh, I think with the intent to try to still cover at least some transgender people. But I want to dispel that myth because it's really important that everyone understands we all have a gender identity, not just transgender people. Everyone has gender identity. And right now, all of us are protected under the current language in the Iowa Civil Rights Act. So if this should move forward and the lawmakers decide to remove gender identity and instead include something within disability, it's only going to cover a tiny fraction of transgender people. And I'll tell you the reason why. So that language around gender dysphoria, that is a medical diagnosis that only a small percentage of transgender people ever get, either because they don't want to be diagnosed with the condition, or maybe they can't access the medical care needed to receive such a diagnosis. Another portion, myself included, uh, I probably would have met the criteria for gender dysphoria many years ago, but I don't currently meet the criteria. So I am a transgender person, but I don't have gender dysphoria diagnosis. I wouldn't be eligible nor seek that diagnosis today, so I'm going to lose protections under that. And then, as I mentioned before, you know, there are lots of different ways to be transgender in the world, and many of those folks would never want to seek a diagnosis because they don't want to change their body in any way, shape, or form. That's usually why someone's going to seek a gender dysphoria diagnosis or you know, need to seek out the medical care that results in that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. About 90 seconds left. What might this mean for your family's future, your plans? Right. So, you know, we do have to really heavily consider if Iowa is a place we want to remain. I certainly don't feel welcome here by most of the folks at our Capitol when they continue to make uh, bills like this that try to impact myself and my family and, you know, allow discrimination. So I would say if Iowa wants to truly have that welcome to Iowa sign ahead our border, then they legislators need to stop and think about these kind of bills where they're sending a message that only certain types of people are welcome in our state. Mm-hmm. And Chris, do you have any plans to try to influence this debate at the state house as it um, uh, begins this week? I mean, I've definitely been contacting my legislators uh, and sending messages to those on the committee. Uh, I wish I could be there on Wednesday for the subcommittee hearing, but unfortunately, I have a business commitment that I cannot change. So, but I know many. Other folks will be there on Wednesday, and hopefully the members of the subcommittee are going to listen to the transgender folks and folks you know, that support and love transgender people. Chris Small, thank you very much for coming into our studio. Thank you so much for having me. Chris is a transgender man and Urbandale resident, and when we come back, we'll be joined by lawmakers, uh, Representative Jeff Shipley, a Republican from Fairfield, Representative Ross Wilburn, a Democrat from Ames, and uh, I'll be co-hosting with Katerina Sestarek of IPR. Back in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
And we're back with more of this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer at this point talking about a bill that would remove gender identity as a protected class under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. Also add gender dysphoria under the definition of disability in Iowa code. And uh, I'm now co-hosting this part of the program with uh, IPR's state government reporter, Katerina Sestarek. She's at the State House Law Library with two lawmakers, Representative Jeff Shipley, Republican from Fairfield, and Representative Ross Wilburn, a Democrat uh, from Ames. Uh, listeners, join us uh, with your questions uh, on this issue, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. If I could take the first question here and then hand over to Katerina Sestarek. Uh, to you, Representative Shipley, we just heard from a transgender man uh, who lives in Urbandale, and he says, uh, without this in our Iowa code, uh, gender identity there, uh, they would not be, he would not be uh, protected uh, uh, as uh, with it in the code, uh, because he's uh, and others like him uh, do not qualify uh, as having gender dysphoria as a diagnosis. Yeah, so that is a great question. Again, great to be with you and your viewers. And again, uh, for the opportunity to build uh, uh, civil rights across the rivers uh, from Iowa and making sure we have a society where everyone's rights and liberties are protected to the fullest extent and that human dignity is always protected. Uh, my first question to, to, to Chris would be, uh, what civil rights attorney has been consulting him? Because uh, we've been talking to a lot of people who feel actually the the protections, the legal protections under this bill could could perhaps be expanded. And then a lot of the legal outstanding legal questions that the state of Iowa is facing on this issue, they likely would be resolved uh, affirmatively in the side of the transgender um, so it's I just I'm not sure exactly where all this is coming from, but his testimony does highlight a lot of the uh, key points that I think the Judiciary Committee needs to examine, again, just to make sure uh, that everyone is fully protected under the law to the fullest extent, but make sure we have a very clear legal code that's easy to apply and, more importantly, easy for people to adhere to. I think everyone wants to be lawful, uh, but given the plain text of the statutes we're looking at, it's gotten very confusing. So um, I think this is a conversation we can all have together to build as much clarity, and I think we share the mutual goal of, of creating the best Iowa that, it, that helps everyone. Isn't it easier and more clear to just leave it how it is right now, which says, you know, gender identity, people are protected from discrimination based on their gender identity rather than, you know, adding more words and making it more complicated under the disability section of the Civil Rights Act? Well, I think I think no matter which way you cut it, it's going to be a complex issue. I think the problem uh, that the legislature needs to address is these are very, very powerful laws and these subjects, whether it's civil rights law and its application or gender identity as a, as a legal and political theory and medical theory. Um, is also not very well understood and is changing a lot over time. So I think no matter what, it's going to be a complex issue. Uh, but I think there are a lot of uh, pertinent legal questions. And I don't, I don't want to grill you, but I, I hope we can get to the answer of some of these questions. Um, first one off the top of my mind is how Linmar School District was able to interpret this code in a way that would require them to lie and deceive parents. Um, another party that's uh, you know, been pretty aggrieved by some of this is uh, municipalities that have had um, young uh, trans teenagers uh, with with who are female uh, exposing themselves in public places and kind of being told there's nothing they can do. Civil rights law protects this. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, if you're an expert on this, you can walk me through the legal analysis that shows and we can have somewhere clearly in law. Uh, that that gives municipalities, school districts very, very clear direction. Another, uh, I think, key outstanding question we have that we need to settle is, 
is uh, is not using someone's pronouns, does that meet the level of unlawful discrimination? I know that was kind of touched on in the federal court under that Lindmar case, uh, but I think if you have a position where an employee has a duty of conscience or a religious belief that prevents them from uh, acknowledging someone's pronouns and says, I have to call you my esteemed colleague or, or whatever respectful a replacement, you know, uh, how would that be handled in, in employment law? So these are very important questions, and I expect them to be coming up quite a bit. I think the legislature has a duty to answer them so we can avoid it uh, getting caught up in the court. Representative Wilburn, do you think um, removing gender identity from the Civil Rights Code would make answering those questions easier? No. In fact, it potentially makes things worse, uh, opening up the Civil Rights Code for other um, groups of people who have been discriminated and some currently being discriminated from being removed. And I know that there are some of my colleagues on the Republican side who wish to do so. But let me thank Chris for taking the courage to come forward to to speak uh, to speak your truth and I you know uh, clearly you're at a point where you're comfortable taking a risk without any harm to your uh, personal mental health um, let's just stick with the real tangible as opposed to a lot of things that representative Shipley packed in there one if you make it just a disability the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, as well as, I believe, the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. When they talk about disability, there's a specific definition, and as a result of that, dis, dis, uh, that definition, you may qualify for reasonable accommodations. With gender identity specifically being put in the Civil Rights Code, that's it. You cannot discriminate based on gender identity and housing and credit and on and on and on. And so uh, the fact that someone with a disability, uh, I'm not going to get into the debate about whether it's a dis disabling com um, condition or not, you may not qualify for a reasonable accommodation. So that in and of itself right there has a practical real life consequence for doing what he's attempting to do. And Representative Shipley, you raised all these, um, you know, issues and questions that you think need to be part of this discussion around gender identity being in the Civil Rights Code. But what about people who are transgender and are concerned about just facing discrimination in housing and public accommodations um, if they're trying to get a loan for a car or a home or something like that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very confused on this line of questioning, to be honest. Uh, it's very hard for me to envision um, that kind of discrimination occurring. Uh, I, I, as far as my data we've had oh, since 2007. I don't think this is an issue that we've been facing. Um, and I, I know you can say uh, that, oh, we've had these protections in place. But again, these laws are not very well understood. So um, no, I, I have a hard time seeing that, especially, I mean, unless there's an objective criteria that the nature of the disability uh, violates the lease agreement. But even under that circumstance, uh, disability has tremendous legal protection. Uh, there's really no limit on, on uh, how a, a recommended or a reasonable accommodation could be agreed to and what kind of expense or uh, you know burden that might be. So I think we just need a lot of clarity on the legal tests that are applied here. I think we need to put as many plain things in the code as possible. Right now, the legislature legislature has been answering these questions one by one as they come up, typically after someone's already been harmed and aggrieved. Uh, so I think it is time to look at the underlying framework that is generating a lot of these issues and concerns. And a lot of people in Iowa are very concerned uh, on these issues. So um, yeah, there's a lot we could say, but, but no, I don't think those particular concerns, it's just so hard to imagine. And again, my advice always 
is if, if there is discrimination or unlawful or unfair anything, let's get it documented. Let's identify these things. That's been my message to people who've reached out to me is, do you feel like you're experiencing unfair discrimination? I'm standing by to help you write a civil rights complaint uh, or to whatever jurisdiction we need to, to document these unfair occurrences because we're committed to uh, having the best Iowa possible for everyone. Do you, um, you know, have you had different experiences and, you know, what you think is going on in terms of discrimination in Iowa or what do you, do you agree with representative Representative Shipley said he's not aware of anyone. My son, um, is a member of the transgender community, uh, chose to leave Iowa because of, uh, what's been going on. He did in 2018, uh, participate in a, uh, interview with the Iowa city press citizen. So uh, his name is James Wolver and I'll just refer folks to just to hear a little bit about his experience. But again, I go back to, you can't get any more plain than you shall not discriminate based on gender identity. And some of the questions that Representative Shipley has about gender dysphoria, uh, and Chris did a nice job saying that, uh, you know, not everyone um, in the transgender community would, would fit under that uh, clinical diagnosis. And that's a critical thing I want to say, because when Representative Shipley brought this up last year or the year before, uh, he relied heavily on the, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental uh, Disabilities. There's a caution at the very beginning of that that says these are for clinical diagnosis, for clinical educational and research settings. It's not to be applied mechanically by individuals without clinical training. Uh, the diagnostic, diagnostic criteria in the DSM are not, they're meant to serve as guidelines to be informed by clinical judgment. They're not to be used, as it, it says, as a rigid cookbook fashion. But uh, a prior version of this, the DSM-4, uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, it's it's for clinical, not for necessarily legal, uh, and in this particular case, legislative things to be bantered around uh, lightly. If you just joined us, uh, we have a discussion between two lawmakers, Ross Wilburn, a Democrat of Ames, uh, Representative Jeff Shipley, Republican of Fairfield. Uh, you wanted to get in a, another word there, Representative Shipley? Yeah, I mean, just I'll to ask quickly um, you know, address that point, um, is there just seems to be a tremendous overlap and, and you can cut it however you want. And I'm, I'm doing my best to learn and be respectful of everyone. But I mean, Representative Wilburn, you yourself alluded to, to, uh, to Chris's mental health and making sure that his mental health wasn't affected just by the courage to speak on these issues. So often we've heard the, the threat, basically, that if we talk about these issues, and I've been told this repeatedly, that if I go to my school board and try to clarify some questions of law, kids will be harmed. They'll hurt themselves. They'll have depressive episodes. They'll be anxious. It'll make it dangerous. This is, I think, the biggest thing we're seeing is... Um, you know, can we really talk about this? And and so much of the accommodation is medically related. Uh, you know, whether it's the testosterone treatment or these reassignment surgeries, they're connected to a medical issue. Although I wouldn't be surprised if the ACLU was claiming that maybe testosterone is not a medical thing because, uh, you know, these are people that are inherent and, and the testosterone is not a medical thing because it's just affirming their identity. I don't know if that's the current argument, but I wouldn't be surprised because in our, in our look at the oversight committee, uh, when we were discussing these medical treatments, which like it or not, are definitely infused with uh, gender identity, you know, in our culture, um, there's tremendous concerns. And I, I, New York Times had a really great expose on uh, Jamie Reed and her whistleblower account that prompts a lot of these uh, 
unanswered questions like young children who are identifying as inanimate objects. Uh, Chris mentioned that everyone has a gender identity, including me, even the child that identifies as a helicopter. Um, you know, how does someone establish themselves as a member of this protected class to get these tremendous legal protections? So I think there are okay. a lot of questions. And as we talk about this, the questions just become greater and greater. Okay. Receiving uh, yeah. just a few Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Representative Wilburn, very quickly. We, we're running out of time. I wanted to make everyone aware of that. I'm sure you are, but go ahead, Representative Wilburn. Being allowed to live in a place that you want to rent or get credit is not an accommodation. It is a civil right protection currently in Iowa code. And what Representative Shipley, uh, Shipley's uh, doing by trying to put it as a, uh, as a under disability, um, it, uh, it leaves out broad swaths of people. And again, you may get an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation, as opposed to mm -hmm. having an outright right. John in Ankeny writes this in an email to Representative Shipley. Um, he says, you stated on KCCI that, quote, the ultimate outcome of 2082, that's this, uh, 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 this uh, House file, if passed, would be to put Iowa law more squarely in line with how the federal courts have been ruling on this issue. And uh, John in Ankeny asks, could you cite examples of such rulings where gender identity was treated as a disability? So the, the inspiration for that is a case from the federal Fourth Circuit called Williams v. Kincaid uh, that did say that a trans woman has uh, legal accommodation to a woman's prison as a, as a result of their gender dysphoria. Uh, so again, that was a case that was ruled in favor of, of a pretty significant accommodation for a trans individual. Um, and so that would be the case. Uh, obviously, Iowa might not be bound by the federal Fourth Circuit, but that is, that is a guidepost that has been put there in, in the federal court system. And I think that is an interesting example because as I've talked to some of the people about this bill, I say, and I explain this, and I give them the links that explains the trans woman uh, being in the woman's facility. Uh, all of a sudden, they go, they go, wait, really? And uh, they weren't so sure that these were the types of things we were talking about. So I think that is a great example that the public uh, should uh, consider and that the Judiciary Committee should uh, give some answers to. As we finish up our conversation, I wanted to reference what Chris said there, you know, um, also with the other legislation here in the state. You can't blame transgender people for feeling less welcome in Iowa. Um, I wonder, as you go forward and you've, you know, uh, Representative Shipley uh, mentioned your openness to explore this, uh, what do you find the most troubling aspects at this point for you? Perhaps is it that you know, transgender people would feel less welcome having this removed from state code. Perhaps you're driving transgender people and their families out of the state. How much does that concern you? Yeah, I think I think a lot of those concerns are somewhat overblown because I think Iowa has just so much to offer. And if you're willing to turn your back on that and the rights and liberties that are afforded to everyone, um, you know, I think that's sad and I'm willing to do what I can. Obviously, this is a work in progress. Um, but but no, we need laws that are clear and easy to apply and I, I just, I just, I just really don't see that occurring. And um, I think that's really sad. But my message is, I'm here to work with you. Uh, we're here to run this through the committee process and get as much input as mm -hmm. possible. Um, so you know, that is our intention here. And I'll, you can call me a hater and a bigot. And I have people who compare me to Hitler just for starting a conversation. And I think that yeah. kind of rhetorical 
that we've seen actually stifles this and creates more of that social tension that might lead to, say, unfair discrimination. So I think it's incredibly important yeah. that we just have as much honest conversation. I'm not convinced everyone coming to the subcommittee meeting on Wednesday are honest, good faith actors. And I think that sets us back uh, considerably. Yeah. We, we just we had no name calling the, and that's the Iowa not House what we're about here on public radio. Yeah. OK. 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 Let's let's make that clear. But the final minute to, to Representative Wilburn uh, there before we, we close this discussion for for today. You know, I mentioned my son is a member of the transgender community, and I want to uh, let folks who are listening, whether you are part of the LGBTQ community, uh, including any allies, that uh, we hear you, uh, we want you here in this state. Uh, you are not those who, like my son, who have left Iowa, have not turned their back on Iowa. Uh, legislation like this turns their back on the trans community, as opposed to focusing on uh, keeping costs low, reproductive care, um, affordable schools, uh, marijuana use for adult uses. That's how we put people over politics. That's how we embrace the model that I've used, Let's Be Iowa, creating opportunities for everyone. And quickly, Representative Wilburn, you do obviously strongly disagree with uh, Representative Shipley's um, idea that this is overblown, uh, the reaction to having this discussion. I don't know Representative Shipley's uh, experience in terms of who's reached out to him. Uh, what I do know is that uh, gender identity in the current code protects all gender identities outright. You don't have to earn it. You don't need a reasonable accommodation. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we have uh, for now. Representative Ross Wilburn and Representative Jeff Shipley, thank you for coming into the State House Law Library to talk about this. Also, I'll thank my co-host, uh, IPR's Katerina Sestark. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh with support from John Pamble, Tony Sarabia, and Maddie Willis. I'm Ben Kiefer. Tune in again tomorrow. Thank you.